All right, the scripture this morning is from Genesis chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. And a quick note, I'm going to, instead of Sarai and Abram, I'm going to say Abraham and Sarah. Same people, just different names. Uh, Now Sarah, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian whose name was Hagar, and Sarah said to Abraham, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servants. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abraham listened to the voice of Sarah. So after Abraham lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarah, Abraham's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abraham, her husband, as a wife. And Abraham went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarah said to Abraham, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abraham said to Sarah, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. So Sarah dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur, and he said, Hagar, servant of Sarah, where have you come from, and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarah. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. And the angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to Hagar, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So Ahagar called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen after the seer. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, before we jump into that text, let's, let's pray. Father, we, we thank you that your word, uh, in your word, you have spoken to us. And, and I pray, especially now for, for Kate and Gabe and Aiden, uh, who, who we gave uh, the scriptures to this morning, the Bible. Um, God, we thank you they're a part of our church. And, and I pray for us adults in this room, we would always remember it is our obligation to pass on the faith to the next generation, whether they're our own children or not. Um, God, that matters so, so much. And so uh, through this, this handing of the word to them, God, would you bless uh, Kate and Aiden and Gabe this morning and bless us as we open your word. Um, God speak, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I was sitting down to, to write the sermon for this Sunday, I feel like every introduction to every sermon in Genesis is going to be the same, uh, which is basically this. Uh, what I just read to you is very strange. And very distant culturally from us. But if like, you're willing to listen to what the text is saying, what's there, there's actually something deeply beautiful and relevant to our current cultural moment. So you peel back everything that, that, that's in that story. And what it is, it's a, it's a woman who's struggling with infertility. It's a man who who last week we saw showed enormous faith in God and now is ready to give up. 
and a woman who's treated so, so badly by the father of her child, she has to flee for safety. That's real life stuff. That's real mess. And I think at least first, like if you open the Bible and you expect to read heroes with great morals, like you're, that's the wrong book. Uh, but if you, wanna, if you want to read the Bible to, to meet God in the mess of life, it's actually like it's a really helpful book. It's a really important book. The Bible is, is real life. And if you, want, if you want God to meet you in real life, not some sanitized white you know, heaven, if, if that's what you think the Bible is, you're just going to be badly disappointed. But if, if you want God to meet you in the, the mess of life, he will. And this story is really, it's about a question. It's about a question all of us. Uh, I think, wrestle with, um, which is, is, is this, that when you hit a dead end in life, uh, who will you trust? Yourself or God? That when your resources are exhausted and, and the, the path forward you've made for yourself, suddenly it's, it's stopped, there's a wall, who will you trust? God or yourself? Because this, this story, it's about three people, and they're all wrestling with that question. It's Abraham, Sarah, and, and Hagar. And, and that's how we're going like, to let the text help us. Just think about those three people, Sarah, Abraham, and, and Hagar. And, and we start in verse 1 with Sarah, who is having a very common human experience, which is she is a woman who wants to have a child, and she, she can. So we read in verse 1, what starts, what frames the entire story for us, is this, now Sarah, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. And immediately we should be thinking about a couple of things when we read that verse. Uh, the, the first is that infertility in this culture was incredibly alienating and painful. And it still is today, and yet like it was, I don't want to undermine the pain and alienation that happens from childbearing or uh, inability to have children today, but it was, it was even worse back then um, because in that day, to have meaning in life as a woman was almost exclusively through having a child. The, uh, the culture only assigned value and dignity to women through, their ch- through the children they had. And it's why uh, here, Hagar's, or, or Sarah is going to great lengths to have a child. Because in that day, to have value, to have dignity, to have significance as a woman, it came through your children, through you being a, a mother. And it's why Sarah's going to such great lengths to have um, a child, and yet Sarah's like pain would have a unique devastation, a unique pain to it. Because you think about like where we've been over the last few weeks in Genesis, is that the whole Abraham Sarah story starts with God coming to Abraham and saying, "Abraham, I'm going to bless the whole world. I'm actually I'm going to through your descendant, I'm going to like save the entire world. Right? There's going to be a, a figure through your line and a people through your line that's going to be a, a blessing and a, and a way of salvation to the entire." World And now here Abraham and Sarah are, they don't have any children, which essentially, like Sarah's infertility is not just uh, a pain that like she's not living into her cultural assigned role of what gives women dignity and value, but she's actually like, she's like the entire plan of salvation, salvation rests on her having a child and she can't. She's letting her husband down. She's letting the world down. She's letting God down, right? I mean, that's usually that's, you can see that like in her own mind. Like, through her, the entire world's going to be blessed, and now it's not because she can't have a child. And it's why, like, the first few times I've, I've read this story, Sarah sounds kind of like a petty figure. And so, like, until you really think about what she's experiencing, what she's going through, what her life is like. 
She's worthless in her culture's eyes. She, uh, you know, she, she's letting God down. She's letting the world down because she's not having this child. And that's why Sarah goes to Abraham and says, um, Abraham, let's have a child, but we're going we're gonna to do it through my servant, Hagar. And this, is, this, is, this is where it gets weird, right, for us. This is a strange practice. Um, but in, in that day, childbearing was so important, both because of the, uh, the value culture assigned to it, but also because like in that day, having children was, was important just to survive. Survival was incredibly difficult, just to do the normal everyday stuff of life. The infertility was, it, was a, it wasn't just a, a, cur- a cultural curse, it was also dangerous. And so that's why the, the people in this day had created um, sort of this, if you were of means, if you had wealth and you had uh, servants in your household, often what they would do is the, if the, the husband and wife couldn't have child, they would find a servant, a female servant, and that's, they would have children through that female servant. So you see that here with Hagar. And what happens uh, in this, this passage is Hagar is taken on as a, a sort of second wife to Abraham. Not quite a second wife, because you, you hear Hagar described both as a wife of Abraham, but also as a servant. And it's, it's sort of this intentional, kind of lower-tiered status. And if Hagar had a child, it would really be Sarah's. And so this is obviously, like, this is deeply uh, troubling to us. And if you're up on culture at all, this is, uh, this is where The Handmaid's Tale gets its jumpstart for uh, the storyline um, of it, about uh, having uh, surrogate children through other uh, people. And, and, and so that, like, that, this is where it all comes from. And I know you have lots of questions about this, and I'd be happy to answer them after the service. I don't want to do a deep dive into ancient Near Eastern uh, marriage practices. Um, and yet, what I often hear is, well, look, the Bible celebrates polygamy. It celebrates multiple uh, wives. And I think that's a really, uh, first of all, it's not how Hebrew narrative works. Just because something is, like if you read the newspaper and there was a story of a murder in there, you wouldn't be like, the Kansas City Star is advocating for murder because they, they talk about murders. No, this is just a story. And Hebrew narrative, what it does is it often, it makes its points very subtly. Um, and, and so it, it, it's condemning this practice. You just don't, you, like, you, it just doesn't come out and say this was wrong. It's obviously wrong because of the way Hagar is treated, because of the way Abraham and Sarah depicted. And yet the Bible doesn't say it um, directly. So just, the Bible, in other words, it's going to show polygamy is a complete disaster without explicitly saying it. And that's how Hebrew narrative works. Um, so look at what happens. So first, Hagar gets pregnant, and she is, she's excited. And we read that she looked with contempt on Sarah. And, and, and we're not quite sure what this means. And a lot of people, well, Hagar was a bad person also. That's probably not what's happening. Probably what's happening is Hagar got pregnant, and she's excited. And ob- like Sarah, who's in this emotionally vulnerable, wounded state, um, has entered into a cultural practice that's not going to help her, right? It's, I mean, the fact that another woman's now going to have a child is not going to help Sarah's pain in any way, shape, or form. And so Hera, she, Hagar, mostly, she's just excited about being pregnant, and, and jealousy ensues, which is what we should probably all expect. Um, and, and now, uh, after Hagar gets uh, uh, pregnant, um, Abraham, or Sarah goes to Abraham, and, and she, she blames Abraham for this first. <clears throat> says, Abraham, this is your fault, Right, you, 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 you got the. This is your baby. This is your th- like. This is all your fault. And Habar, hey, uh, Abraham responds to Sarah, uh, "No, actually, this is your fault. She's your servant. You, you take care of the mess. Right? This is your employee. You figure it out." Um, and so this is going well. <laughs> right? Abraham and Sarah are blaming one another. Hagar, a pregnant woman, is in a vulnerable um, position. And so, like I said, the Bible, the polygamy is a complete disaster whenever it's taken up. 
in the Bible. So people who read, like, well, look, Abraham was a polygamist. Yeah, and look what's happening. It's a disaster. And so why, like, why tell this story? Why not skip over this, this story to one of the better ones? Um, why preach on this? What does this have to do with us? Well, let's go through each character. Starting with Sarah. And again, like, my guess is that the idea that in that day, cultural, culture assigned value to women only through the childbearing, that's really offensive um, to us, as it should be, right? A woman is not only worth the children that she produces. That's a wrong I, idea. And yet, uh, I think our reaction to that is, well, and we don't do that anymore. But we do. The culture, our culture assigns uh, messages and values to all of us saying, you have to be like this in order to have value, significance, dignity. Puts pressure on us to live in certain ways, right? You have to get certain grades. You have to go to a good college. You have to have a good career. You have to make a certain amount of money. Uh, if you're a woman, you probably should still have tr- children and a career. If you're a guy, you should have a success. We still do this. So the idea that we would look on an ancient culture and say, well, you did something that, you know, you, just, you did this. This is how you assign value and put pressure on people. That's worse than what we're doing. I think that's, I think that's a little arrogant myself. I'm not, I'm not affirming what they're doing here. I'm just saying all cultures do this. They say you only have value if you perform in this, in this way. And I, I think, listen, I, in some ways, right, our culture has made progress, especially with, with treatment of, of women. We no longer say, like, your value is only um, attributed to, to, to the fact that you, you have children or you, or you don't. And yet, uh, I, a few weeks ago, I, I mentioned Brene Brown, who talked about how our culture, what it does is it sends messages both to men and women and then shames us by not living into those messages. And, and the message she defined towards women uh, was this, was do it all, do it perfectly, and never let them see you sweat. And if you remember to guys, the, um, the, uh, the, um, sort of the cultural message to guys is never, basically never get knocked off your horse, right? Always look strong. Never let failure in. And so no, like our culture doesn't assign values in the same way, but we are just as, as crippling and enslaving and putting pressure on people to live in certain ways as they were in this day. And I think even more so, like one of the great ironies of our culture is we all want to be individuals. We all want to be ourselves. But oftentimes the way we are individualistic, the way we live out the, our path through our own lives, right? It's through our career. It's through our, through our family, through our wealth. The very messages the culture is saying, you have to have this in order to have value, significance, and meaning. And so the roles we assign people today as a culture, they're different than Genesis 16, but they can be just as crippling just as enslaving. So back to the question, when you hit a dead end in life, when your resources are exhausted, who will you trust? God, yourself, and maybe a third is, or is it your culture? What's, what's, What's happening to Sarah here? Are you looking for meaning in life through what your culture tells you you have to do in order to be a good person, to be a valuable, significant person? When you hit a dead end in life, do you just double down in your career and work harder and, and remove yourself from the home even more? Or do you try to find value through your children even more than you already were? When life begins to unravel, how do you find meaning? Where do you, where do you look? Do you trust yourself? Do you trust what your culture is telling you is a good life? Or do you trust God? And Sarah has bought the message, I only have value if I have kids, and it's destroying her marriage, her relationships around her, her family. So that's, that's Sarah. Uh, Abraham is, is worse. 
right? Abraham is not depicted as a good person here. And, and if you didn't listen to last week's podcast, you really need to, because if, only if you were here last week does Abraham's failure eat, like make true sense, which is that last week Abraham was wrestling with the fact that he didn't have a child. And he said to God, like, how do I know you're going to do what you said you're going to do? And God makes this outlandish promise to Abraham. I'm going to do this. Trust me. Believe my promise. And God makes this outlandish gesture towards uh, Abraham is saying to say, uh, Abraham, essentially, I will die before I break my promise to you. That's last week's sermon. You need to hear that if, if you didn't hear it. So here Abraham is in this moment. He does, like God has pr- said, I'm going to die if I don't give you a child. And now Sarah has come to Abraham and said, uh, Sarah, Abraham, I can't have a child. Uh, let's do it this way instead. And Abraham's forced with a choice. And choice one is, I'm, let's go have a child with another woman because I'm in control of that process. Right? God hasn't delivered, so I'm just going to do this myself. I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to take up my own plan. I'm going to come up with my own resources. I'm going to carve my own way forward. God has said, uh, um, you know, he's promised me this, but I'm going ta- to take matters into my own hands. That's choice one Abraham has. Choice two is to trust in the supernatural provision of God. That God will provide, and I don't have to, I don't have to create my own path. I don't have to dip into my own resources. God, God said he will provide. He's promised very specifically, I will trust him. And Abraham decides to take matters into his own hands. And it costs him his relationship with his wife. He badly mistreats, I mean, Abraham is condemned here for the way he treats Hagar. And what, I mean, she's a pregnant woman who has to, has to flee into the desert. It's, a da- it's dangerous. It's, it's, it's terror. And so again, when you read the Bible, they're not, Abraham's not the hero. He's the villain in this moment. And he ha- because he has a choice, take matters into my own hand or trust the supernatural resources of God. And, and listen, these, this is a weird story. It's so distant from us culturally. And yeah, I hope, like, I hope you can see yourself here. That when you hit the end of your resources, the end of your great planning, right? You figured it all out. You know what's ahead. When you hit a dead end in life, there's no path forward. Do you, do you double down on yourself or do you trust God? Do you trust his supernatural resources, his path forward in life, or do you trust yourself? Because the, lesson, like the first lesson from this story is that, that, is that we were never meant to live out of our own resources. You were never meant to live out of your own natural resources. You were always meant to live out of the supernatural resources of God. And that, listen, that's a, le- that's a lesson I've been wrestling with um, in my own life. Uh, Ten days ago, I turned uh, 36, had my birthday, uh, which means, uh, and I apologize to, to those of you in your 50s, but this is what I thought. Uh, I'm now closer to my 50s than I am to college. That's a weird, that's, for me, it's like, whoa, like I'm, I'm, like I'm getting older. Uh, I think every birthday, like we all realize, oh, I'm going to die. Like I'm closer to my 70s now than I am to my birth. Um, and I was thinking, like I was thinking about that, like where I'm at in life, um, you know, when the day comes to me, God, like where am I at? And, and I, you know, I think what I realized is the last couple of years I've hit, I think I've hit a wall, um, because, like, you know, many of you know, like, there's just been enormously difficult per- personal circumstances in my life over the last couple of years. And what I've found is I've tried to get around that in so many different ways, just through doubling down on my own efforts. Um, you know, like, we're a big spiritual discipline church. And, and so I, I memorized a lot of scripture in that season, thinking this, this, is, this will do it. Um, you know, last year, I, okay, it's, well, that is, I'm going to run a marathon. That, this is going to do it. 
And I've, just, I've doubled down on my own resources and I've come back to what I found is every time I've gotten a long way, a path around the wall, I've just found I've met it in another place. And so, I, you know, June 1, my, my, my prayer rhythm, and this is a practical life hack tip, not a do this or don't, but one of the things I do is I pray, I pray through the Psalms each month. And depending on the day of the month, it's Psalm 1, uh, 30, 60, 90, 120, and then I, I move the next day. And so June 1st, the day after my birthday, I was in Psalm 61, and I got my, uh, I got my year verse, my, my lap 37, year 37 verse, um, that I, just, like, I felt God speaking to me through this. And it's Psalm 61 starts with the psalmist saying, God, I'm crying out to you, um, hear my prayer. And then he says this, he says, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. And of course, like the image is, in that day especially, um, the place of safety is, is high, right? You can look down on your enemies, you can protect yourself better. Um, and yet, like, you, like getting to the high point of a rock, it's a dangerous journey. Like someone has to lead you, you have to be a really good climber. And I just sense God saying, like, Tim, put down your own efforts, you trying to figure out life yourself, just let me lead you. Right? Be still, Listen. And in many ways, like Genesis 16, I'm just preaching to myself this morning. And I hope as you listen in, like you can take some lessons for your own life. But I, I get this, like we are, we are thir- like thoroughly American, which is that if there's a problem, I can solve it. And if I hit a wall, I just, that just means you got to work harder. You got to climb faster. You got to run around it. And what's so, like, what's so interesting about Genesis 16 to me was that all Abraham and Sarah needed to do was nothing. Just Wait. Just wait on the Lord. Trust, uh, trust in Him. And I, I think the key verse where, where you see things changed is in verse 2 when it says, Abraham listened to the voice of Sarah. Right? He's no longer listening to the voice of the Lord. He's no, longer, he's no longer praying. He's no longer asking. He's no longer engaging God. He's listening to another voice, and he carves out another plan. And it is, it's a disaster. And I think it's why, like Jesus, he has, there's this moment in Jesus' life where he looks at people with like com- without complete irony. It's it's a weird passage, and he, he looks at people. And he says, "You know, don't be anxious." He's like, "Of course, this is the worst thing you can say to an anxious person is don't be anxious." He says, "Don't be anxious." He's like, "Look at birds. Look at the birds. They uh, they don't ever think about what they're going to eat. They they didn't put the feathers on themselves. They didn't clothe themselves. Like they just and yet they like they go about life singing. Right? He doesn't say this. this is my interpretation, but like you hear birds, they're just singing. They're joyful." And yet they don't know where their next meal is coming from. They, they didn't clothe um, themselves. And it's, it's, pretty, uh, it's pretty beautiful um, when you, like, if you live life like a bird, which I think Jesus did. He's like, what are you, like, he's going to die on the cross. And he's like, what are you guys worried about? Like, God provides. Live in that faith. Live in that sense of, of, of being. And yet when you live life out of your own resources, you're always going to be anxious. Because it's on you, right? It's, you've got to figure it out. You've got to carve the path forward. You have to figure, you, you better do it or no one else will. And here in Abraham and Sarah's story, one of the first stories we get, what, what life of faith looks like is, is don't take life into your own hands. You were never meant to live out of your own resources. Trust in God's supernatural provision for whatever is ahead. And sometimes the best thing you can do in life is nothing. So that's Abraham and Sarah. Um, what about Hagar? Well, as Abraham says to Sarah, right, this is your fault. This is your servant. You take care of it. And um, again, if this hasn't been clear, Abraham is a terrible human being in the story, right? This is, this is not good. This is not affirmed. And we read, uh, 
In the last part of verse 6, Then Sarah dealt harshly with her, with Hagar, and Hagar fled from her. We don't know what this is. Whatever it is, whatever happens here is, is bad enough. It causes a pregnant woman to fly into the de- to flee into the desert alone. So think about it. Like we have some pregnant women here. It's getting hot. It's summer. Like what would cause you to go by yourself? And run, like whatever, that's, that's how bad it is. And she goes into the, the desert alone and, and God goes and finds her. And he says this to her. This is the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? So the angel of the Lord. We say, well, who's this, right? And what we find is, is anytime this character shows up, the angel of the Lord in the Hebrew scriptures, uh, it'll happen later in Genesis 32 with Jacob. It'll happen with Moses in Exodus. It happens with Joshua in the book of Joshua. And what we find is anytime anyone encounters the angel of the Lord, their response to that encounter is that they've actually encountered the Lord. They weren't talking to an angel. They were actually encountering to, like, God himself. And Christians have thought about this like lots of ways. Like, is it God himself? Is it Jesus? Is it, well, who is it? And I don't know. Whoever it is, it's God. He's like, Hagar is interacting with God himself in this, this moment. And there are, there, are two, uh, there are two sides to this encounter with Hagar. And it's all, it's all captured in the name Hagar gives to God, which is God is the God who sees. You see, it's a really powerful name, right? Hagar's been mistreated by Abraham and Sarah. She's a pregnant woman by herself, alone, terrified, and, and her encounter of God leads her to say, God has seen me. It's almost like, this is worth pausing for a minute. Like, do you believe the creator God of the universe sees you? Right? It doesn't just look at the world and like, oh, yeah, there's some people down there. But, like, like knows you personally, individually. Do you believe? I mean, that's what Hagar's saying is God, the Lord saw me, sees me. And this is powerful, and it means a couple of things in this passage. The, first, like the idea that God sees her, the first part we're probably all going to in our minds and hearts is that God, like, she, he sees the terrible circumstances that she is in. And you get this, like God's, like his encounter with Hagar starts with a question. Actually, anytime you're asking someone a question, right, you're not coming in like guns blazing, right? He's, he invites Hagar into a relationship. Hagar, where are you going? Where, what happened to you, Hagar, is essentially what he's asking. And Hagar tells him what happens, and, and then he blesses her after that. And, he, and here's what he says. This is really interesting. He says, behold, uh, behold, you're pregnant. You shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. I love that phrase, the Lord has listened to your affliction. It's really interesting, right? It's, it's not, the, God didn't, didn't look at, at her, like, I heard your prayer and I responded, or Right, you know, you prayed a really good prayer, now I'm here. Or, you, you know, you're a good person, you've been mistreated, now I'm here. Now the Lord, well, the reason God shows up to Hagar in this moment is because he heard, not her prayer, not her words, he actually heard her affliction. Like the pain of her heart, like didn't even need to be spoken in words. God heard that, and now he has, he's shown up. to the, Like he's heard the very pains of her heart. Like, do you believe that about God? Like, the, that he does, like, you don't have to pray to him necessarily. I mean, you should pray to him, but you, like, your words aren't necessarily what he hears. He, he hears past the ears, in, like, into your own heart, into your very being. Like, what you're experiencing, what, you're, like, what your feelings 
are. And, and the New Testament talks about this. The, the, it says the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, prays for us when we can't pray for ourselves. It's a similar idea, right? When we don't have words, God already knows what's in there. He hears it. He listens to it. And you see this idea all over the Psalms. And one of my favorite Psalms, uh, Psalm 31, says this. Uh, the psalmist prays, I will rejoice be glad in your steadfast love because you've seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul. Do you believe that about God? Not just that he listens to your distress, or that he, he wants to engage you in prayer. He actually knows your distress. He, actually, he experiences your affliction with you. He hears it. He listens to it. The contrast between Hagar and Sarah could not be more significant. And the hero of the story, or the, 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 the person of the story we're to, we're to look, look to, is not the biblical models of faith, Abraham and Sarah. It's Hagar, the servant, from the wrong country, from the wrong place, right? A young female who's been mistreated. She's the one to whom we're, this is how you experience God, like her. And what Hagar does, she has this vulnerable experience where she lets God all the way in to her affliction, into her pain, into her suffering. There's not a wall. She lets God all the way in. And yet that's only one side of her experience with God. There's another side. We like this. This is the side where like, that'll preach, right? The Lord listens to your affliction. It's the other side. This is more challenging. Because when you get to the end of verse 13, and she, she says, like, this, like God, God is the God who sees. She explained what she, she means by this name. In, in verse 13, and I, I say, if you're, if you're reading along in the ESV, you notice I didn't read the ESV, because this is one of the few times, I always want to be careful about this, because like Bible translations are like 99% great, but the, like the ESV really misses this. If you have the NASB, it's much better, because the Hebrew isn't saying, uh, truly I have seen him who, who looks after me, like, right, I saw the person who's looking after me. Actually, the he, all the Hebrew says, only three words, is I have seen after the seer saw me. I've seen after the seer saw me. Um, and it's actually a question in the Hebrew. Have I seen after the seer saw me? Uh, and what, what this is saying is, like in the Hebrew Bible, there's the expectation, if you see God, you, you don't live. That God is so holy, he's so other, he's so good. Uh, he's like a fire. If you get too close, you, like, you don't make it out alive. And it's why Hagar isn't just saying, the Lord saw my affliction. He, she's also saying, the Lord saw my affliction. He saw me, I saw him, and I lived. And I, sh I shouldn't have. I mean, that's, what, that's, what her, that's why she names the God who sees. It's not just a God who sees affliction. It's a God who, if we get, if we get so near, uh, we're in, in danger. Right? That's hard for us because, you know, I think if there's any idea of God we have today, it's God, well, God loves me and he, like, he cares for me and he wants to be near me. And the idea that if we get near to God, we actually don't survive that encounter, that's just so foreign to our culture. So let me, let me try to explain this in a couple of different ways, what this means. Uh, the first is that there's this old Jewish story of a rabbi who uh, was being rocked, uh, mocked by the, uh, the Roman emperor Trajan. And essentially, like, uh, Jewish and Christian people both were mocked by Roman, the Roman people because... Uh, you know, they all had like statues to represent their gods, whereas Christians and Jewish people, we don't have, we don't believe that you can put God in an image, in a statue. So they would always be, well, you guys are atheists, you don't believe in God. And so the emperor Trajan uh, was mocking this rabbi saying, like, listen, you, you don't believe, where's your God? Show me your God. And so the rabbi says, okay, I'll show you, I will show you God if you're willing to, to look on one of his emissaries. 
right, one of his messengers. If you're willing to look one of his messengers, his emissaries, full in the face, then I will show you God. And Trajan's like, yeah, sure, do that. I'll, I'll do that. And the rabbi says, okay, you need to look at the sun. Of course, you can't do that. Like if you stare at the sun, you go blind. It doesn't work. And, and, and the rabbi's point is, if a sun is an emissary of God and you can't look at the sun, how do you, like, you're not, you can't look at God. He's not a little statue. Right? That, that's one. If, so if, if you, like, encountering with God, like, an encounter with God is even more intense than looking at the sun. Or the, uh, right, the children's novel story of this, the, the oft-repeated explanation by C.S. Lewis. In, in his novel, The Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe, um, he has this figure named Aslan, who's the Christ. He's a representative of Christ in, in this fictional land, Narnia. And so the children have gone into this land, Narnia, and they're, they're hearing about Aslan, this Christ figure, this, this person. And, and he sounds nice, right? He sounds like everyone should want to meet him. And yet uh, they, they also hear like he's a lion. And so the children, uh, Lucy, one of the characters, asks the animal that's speaking to them, Mr. Beaver. She says, I shall feel real, rather nervous about meeting a lion. Is Aslan safe? And Mr. Beaver replies, safe. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. Like, God, like an encounter with God is like encountering a lion, a good lion. It's, it's, it's safe. It's, it's not safe, but it's, it's good. And Hagar has met a lion, and she knows it. That this God is holy. He's not like her. I think often one of the primary reasons I want to live out of my own resources, I want to live in charge of my own life, is because I know God's a lion. And if I let him in, he's not safe. He's going to take me places I don't want to go. He's going to do things to me that I, I don't want done. He's going to have opinions I don't want to have. He'll take you out into the wilderness. He'll lead you to the brink to experience affliction. And the decision we have to make is, do you want a safe life? You can't, have a, you can't have a safe life with a lion, right? You can't, you can't be safe staring into the sun. And so do you want a safe life or do you want a life with God? And those two things are not the same. You have to, you have to let him lead you wherever he might because the only way to get to the rock that is higher than you <laughs> is him. And it raises, okay, so how do we look at the sun, right? How do we get near to to God? How do we live out of our resources, uh, out of his resources and not our own? And, and, and listen, like there's a couple of ways Hagar is meeting um, God. And, and we, have to meet, we have to meet God like Hagar meets God. And like I said, we love the idea that God listens to our affliction. We, that preaches. And yet we also, we have to meet God as a lion, a holy God. It's knowing God is like staring into the sun because I'm a failed sinner. I'm a broken experiment who have the audacity to think that I have the resources to live my own life, not God. It's not just, you know, in other words, like our condition is not just tragic in the sense of, oh, we made a mistake. It's also like it's foolish and rebellious in the sense that I think I can do my life without God. And now to like reintroduce myself back into this lion, this sun, like that's, that's not going to be a safe experience. And you have to meet God like that. If you try to meet God as only a God who hears your affliction and not as a lion, you won't meet him. To meet him in, as a holy God who owes you nothing. Who you have taken everything from. And if you meet him as anything less, you, you can't meet him. You have to meet him as a lion. A holy God staring in 
to the Son. I think that's the bigger, that's the bigger hurdle in meeting with God. Is most of us want, we, we want a God, but we want a God who agrees with us. A God who never pushes back, who never, you know, who never leads us in a direction we wouldn't want to, to go. We want a tame, safe lion, and they don't exist. And he doesn't exist like that. So you have to meet God like that. The other, and, and, and this is, again, this, this, this one preaches, but the other way you have to meet God um, is the way Abraham and Sarah weren't willing to meet God, which is you have to meet him with nothing, with hands empty. And so in the New Testament, when uh, Paul is, he's, he's describing this story, and it's, it's Galatians 4, it's even probably more strange than the story it, itself. And yet, uh, what, 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 uh, what Paul says in Galatians 4 is there, like, there's two ways of trying to do life with God. One is like Abraham and Sarah, which is you try to, you try to carve out a path forward with God, and it, you do it yourself, and you have good works, and you approach God on the basis of the fact that you're a good person, and you've done good things, and now God should respond to you, right? What, what Abraham and, and so what Paul's saying is Abraham and Sarah... Right? They decide to have a child through Hagar because they're in control of that process. And a lot of like, that's how we want to approach God is I'm a good person. Uh, he, if I'm a good person, he will respond to me. He will save me if I do the right things for him. And Paul says, don't do that. Instead, you have to approach God solely with hands empty, supernatural resources. The only way you're going to be saved is through the work of Jesus, right? Through a child that God gives to Abraham and Sarah uh, like that. Like he gives, uh, we'll read this in a couple of weeks, Isaac, they, they get the child but not through their own resources, not through their own human efforts, only through the gift of God. And, and what, God's, what Paul's saying is the way you receive the gospel, the way you receive Jesus, is not through your own works and through your own efforts and through your own plans and through your own good works. It is only received empty-handed as a gift. Just like Abraham and Sarah get a child when they were too old and they were barren and they couldn't have children, so God will produce salvation in your own life. And if you think, like, that's a powerful statement if you believe it. Right? If you believe you, like, God doesn't want your good works, he just wants you, like, that's that so freeing, right? Like, culture tries to assign you roles you have to live into, and you better live into them, and if you don't, you're valueless. God says, you don't have to live into any roles with me. Just come empty-handed. Let me save you. Right? Let, me give you let me give you the child, even though you're, you're barren. Let me give you a, a, a good life, even though you can never get it yourself. That salvation in Christianity comes not through your own resources. So you have to meet God as a lion, and you have to meet him empty-handed because, as the prophet Isaiah said, the reason we meet him empty-handed is that he's the one who bore our griefs. He took our sins off of ourselves. He carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken, afflicted. Right? We looked at Jesus and said, well, you're afflicted on the cross, and yet Jesus, in that moment, was taking our afflictions off of us, our sins off of us. And so when you hit a dead end in life, when you get to the end of your own resources, what will you do? Double down on yourself, right? Like work even harder or trust the Lord? Come to God with nothing, empty-handed, let him in and let him lead you to the rock that is higher than you. Let's pray. Father, what a strange story, and I know there's so much here that, God, we can't talk about, and yet um, we see you chasing down Hagar and seeing her, where she's at. And, Lord, like, we can preach all day long, we could play songs. We, God, you have to chase us down and see us, and so I pray each person in this room, whether it's this moment, whether it's this morning, whether it's this week, this month, whenever, God, let, uh, 
Let us see you as you are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.